0: Okay. Okay. Here we go. All right. Um, so let's start with some some housekeeping stuff. Um, now we only have about nine people here. Okay, that's okay. We we can start. So I've um, posted on the the content the um, not the content area, but the uh, the the uh, announcement area. There is a survey. That I'm asking you to do. It's somebody else in the graduate department is um, doing a survey of people's experience with Shakespeare, and they just want questions. Your email will be entered to win a, a $50 gift card for Amazon. So, you know, if you do this survey, you'll you'll be entered into a lottery to do that, and so that'll be helpful for them, helpful for for the graduate department in terms of uh, I think it's reading Shakespeare reading Shakespeare and seeing different adaptations of Shakespeare. Um, and so what is the what is the circumstances there? Um, so, if you could do that, that's fine. We also have the, I don't know, does anybody know when the final is? Did anybody else get the date? Or was it just me? Do I have to announce that to you guys? I don't think that we Wait, never mind.
1: I think it might be in there. I'll
0: have to check. Okay, sorry. well, you yeah, take a look. Um, you know, if, if nobody knows, I mean, it's it's like November seventeenth or something like that. Um, but yeah, that'll be the last thing. So your your final paper will be due well in advance of that, and then you you know, you do uh, do the final. Wait, I'm pro- I'm sorry. Did you just say
1: November seventeenth?
0: No, uh, December. December. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so it's going to be, not, not for a little while, um, but they just they announced the, I, I just got the final time, so um, if you don't know when that is, I'll, I'll post that as well. Good. All right, any other questions? Okay, great. So let's get into... Um, Let's finish off from last week. We'll finish off with the Brecht stuff and the, you know, the, the, uh, the alienation technique that Brooke talks about in his work. Um, and so just talk about what that is and why that exists and what Brooke means in reference to Brecht. So, um, last time we, we saw the national theater video about their staging of, of Mother Courage. And there was some stress on the alienation effect, also known in, in German. The term is Verfrommdungst we- effect. And that means Verfrommdungst, I believe, means like estrangement. And the, the basis of the philosophy, the belief behind the, the, the philosophy of estrangement, is really a means of diverging from Aristotle. Aristotle's idea was that um, the theater acts on, on the pathos. It acts on the emotion, um, and it leads to a catharsis, emotional, uh, you know, a a point of extreme emotional response. And what the the problem with that, according, uh, you know, not not the, not the problem with that according to Brecht. Excuse me, but um, what Aristotle says is then, uh, catharsis makes us feel good. Because after you have this kind of emotionally damaging occurrence, you then heal, right? You get better from it, and so the sort of euphoria after a really good plague or a really good movie, in our case, would be from the the recovery from catharsis. It's actually part of the cathartic process, is is getting over the kind of the emotional tragedy, and then you you know you feel good afterwards, right? And so according to, to Brecht and then Brooke as an interpreter of Brecht is that this recovery, this cathartic process, is something they want to avoid. And the reason is, or, or Brooke wants to avoid it in the rough theater anyway, um, the reason for this is that Brecht wants theater to do something in the world. He wants to make changes in the world. Um, if you are going through a cathartic process, you're basically getting over the tragedy of the play. You are being reincorporated into the world, um, and therefore you're not, you know, ready to change it or, or take protest against it. Uh, and so Brecht's theater is anti-Aristotelian, according to the prospect that Aristotle sets forward in his Poetics his means of um, divorcing the individual from catharsis is estrangement, estrangement or alienation from the, the emotions, okay? Um, and so when you're, you're alienated from an emotional occurrence, when you're not having, you're not kind of uh, having a, a cathartic, A sympathetic and empathetic response, you then can examine the political realities undergirding the dramatic occurrences. And so his play that we saw previewed in the National Theater video, Mother Courage and Her Children, is about sources of war. And Brecht wants to look at that. And he doesn't want um, the the people watching the play to be moved by the fact that Mother Courage keeps losing her children in the war. That would be a very sad thing, and we could, you know, uh, y- you can imagine, um, right, Saving Private Ryan, right, is a war movie in which a woman loses all her children in war, save one, and so Tom Hanks and Vin Diesel and, and a few other people have to go and, and save um, Private Ryan, Matt Damon, from. Um, the, the predations of the Nazis. And, and you know, it, it's kind of more of emotionally driven movie. Breck doesn't want that because when you watch Saving Private Ryan, you're interested in the human trauma. You're not interested in the political realities that shape society as such that they go to war. And so we saw an example of Mother Courage. Instead of an extremely realistic battle scene, like you see in Saving Private Ryan, you know, The D-Day scene is famous for its realism, right? You know, that that scene that Spielberg shoots on the beach. Um, If you look at black and white photographs of it and black and white photographs of the actual D-Day, you can't see the difference. But when we get to Mother Courage and her children, there is a light show and a guy on stage with a mic making bomb noises. It's impossible to be sucked into the realism of war if... War is a guy with a microphone on stage making bomb noises, right? You know, and and so then the idea is you're not really dazzled by the realism or brought into the, the emotional life. You are looking at the circumstances, looking at the engine that forms these circumstances, and you're making an evaluation predicated upon those things. And therefore, the idea would be: once you are politically aware, vis-à-vis this play, you can go out and make changes in the world, um, and that's that would be the point of the alienation effect. Now, I, I, I mean, if you're like me, you think the idea that a bunch of people are going to watch a play in German and then run out and and change the world um, seems radically silly, and it, it's it is kind of radically silly. It it, it is. Uh, it you know didn't happen right the the world didn't suddenly become a socialist utopia because Bertolt Brecht wrote a bunch of plays in the the twenties thirties and forties um, but what ends up happening interestingly enough and ironically enough is that the tactics of alienation the theatricalisms that alienation affords end up being used just for shits and giggles, just for the fun of it, just to make the production more enjoyable. And how this happens is, uh, well, I'll use an example to illustrate, and then we can talk about how this happens. So in Mother Courage and her children, not in the preview we saw, but in the original production, which was, I think, from the early 1940s, um, but in the original production, there's the, the main character, whose name is actually Mother Courage walks around with a wagon selling things in a in a war-torn area. I believe it's a part of the Thirty Years' War. So this is um, sometime between uh, 1618 and 1648. I think those were the years of the Thirty Years' War. And she, so she's selling things on the battlefront. Um, and in order to show her walking, there's a... a circular stage that rotates and so she picks up her her wagon and walks and, and the stage uh, starts rotating and it looks like she's walking, right? Um, the idea here is that separates us from the reality of her actually walking somewhere. You know, it's clearly a stage rotating, you could see that. However, when Les Miserables came to Broadway in the, in 1985, I think, Les Miserables is a play that is swinging for the fences when it comes to catharsis. It wants to. It wants to be a tearjerker. It wants you know Fontaine to sing a very long song about dying and how sad she is, and everybody cry because poor Fontaine. Uh, Les Miserables uses the rotating stage exactly in the same way Brecht did. However, the effect is the exact opposite. They are looking. the The intent is the exact opposite too. I mean, i I'm, I'm not one of these people who enjoys Les Miserables, but whatever. If you do, um, you enjoy it because of that kind of. Uh, Emotional height the, the play brings you to and it uses Brechtian techniques to do that It's using Brechtian staging techniques to solicit the exact opposite effect And what that means is then is what Brecht has done is created a toolbox of fun in order to um, Make plays more exciting to make them more theatrical to make them less like movies because you know why go to a uh, an incredibly realistic kitchen sink realism type play when you could see something even more realistic on screen right you know that there there is no real affordance to realism um, that the theater has that a, a film doesn't that doesn't mean that realistic theater is bad it isn't at all I'm not I'm not saying that what I'm saying is that realism um, is no longer the purview of just theater. However, theatricalism is, and Brechtian techniques allow us to recognize the theater as such. It recognizes that we are in a theater space, and then it allows uh, innovators and and theatrical people to to generate cool new devices. And this is what Brook, you know, our famous man here, Peter Brook, is talking about in his book. I think Brooke is is less invested in, you know, subverting American capitalism or, or um, 20th century capitalism as he is in um, reminding us that we're in the theater because it's really cool to remind you in you're in the theater. It's cooler to come up with a clever way of um, of demonstrating something. You know, the man with the microphone making the noises than it is to have a soundtrack with incredibly realistic noises of uh, of war. Because it's not going to sound anywhere near as realistic as if you see it in Saving Private Ryan. Uh, the, the, the budget is just going to be larger in Saving Private Ryan. And the, the escape of looking through uh, a camera to see a staging is going to make something far more realistic than... Um, than you can do on stage. So lean in the opposite direction. Come up with little tricks, uh, little techniques to, to, you know, to to celebrate the theatricalism of the production. And so the, the question then is, how does this apply to you? Obviously. So this is done in the spirit of your, your directing project. This is sort of advice on how you can approach your directing project. Um, and so if you want to do... A, uh, a Brechtian style version of one of the plays we did or, you know, an adjacent play. I know somebody is doing Macbeth. I, I don't remember who. I might not even be in this class. But somebody's doing Macbeth. And if you wanted to do the, the Brechtian Macbeth, um, then, then great. If you wanted to go full on Brecht and do like, we're going to use Brecht to explore the political realities of X, Y, and Z, um, that's also fine. Right. And actually, that's that's great. That would be a a great concept. Um, What Brecht did was if we wanted to talk about war in the 21st century, in the 20th century, he would show you a war in the 17th century. Again, this is alienation. We're not talking about the war we're experiencing, which people would be very emotional about. You know, if you're talking about World War Two discussing World War II during the 1940s is a particularly emotional topic for people living in the 1940s. If you talk about the 30 years war of the 17th century, you know, the, no, no one's alive who's experienced that. So they're, they're not particularly emotional. They're more alienated from the action and they can talk about that. You know, it's, it's almost like if we wanted to talk about, um, you know, the actions of Richard II, it's really hard to get emotionally, uh, emotionally upset about the rule of Richard II because it is so distanced, it's so alien from us. It's much easier to get emotionally invested in the the two American political parties and, and their actions. right People take sides. people get very um, very invested in the kind of modern political discussion. But if you instead distance yourself from that by talking about something in the distant past, you can talk about political themes or social themes in a way that allows people to kind of judge the conditions of those themes or the arguments themselves, as opposed to jumping in their modernly constructed political camp. Um, and so if you wanted to use Macbeth to talk about something in the modern world, something going on now or, or, or recently, Brechtian, a Brechtian concept would be perfectly appropriate. Right? It would allow you to do that. However, if you wanted to do uh, use a different concept, but use Brechtian techniques, not really a Brechtian concept overall, but just borrow techniques, just as Les Miserables did, borrowing the rotating stage, that would also be fine. That probably would not appeal in uh, appear in your concept section of your project. It would instead probably appear in the director's script, in the action portion when you would talk about how you what what action would occur on stage right or it might appear it might appear in the the director's note portion when you talked about um uh, the set design or uh, effects you wanted to do right so um maybe borrowing again from the national theater video if you wanted to talk about the war that occurs at the beginning of Macbeth. And use the the guy with the microphone, right? Somebody doing um, doing uh, 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 on stage sound effects of the war—that'd be great. Or somebody, you know, with like kind of pots and pans and a microphone, making the effect of uh, of horses or 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 battles or whatnot, um, and forwarding the theatricalism of that—that that would also be great, right? These are options you would have, um, and therefore it wouldn't have to be. Brechtian in this this political sense, it could just be fun theater techniques, right? Fun ways of doing things. Okay. Um, good. So I talked a lot there. So we'll stop now. Any questions about any of that? Really. That that made sense. Okay. <laughs> um cool. All right.
1: Uh I mean like sorry, I just have to like digest it. Okay. <laughs> you question,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Sure, that that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um so you you could always email me questions. Um these projects are do, I think due on the seventh so you have like another three weeks, so clearly you have time to to do what you're doing. Um but yeah, but that's those are the ideas. If not, we're going to to move into the 18th century uh and into to Marivaux and some ideas about French theater. Okay? Any other questions before we do that? Okay, good. So let me share my screen. We have another slideshow
1: mm-hmm.
0: all right so in the regime um so this was kind of the method of rule uh really from the real really mostly through the bourbon monarchs The Bourbons start with Henri IV, really in the later part of the 16th century. uh, And it solidifies this this rule of um, inheritance. It also divides people into different social spheres. So, you know, you don't come out of your social sphere. And if you're a laborer, if you're a priest, if you're a member of the aristocracy, there's a kind of sense of positive law. You, that is, your social sphere dictates what laws apply to you. Um, now, what you start to see in in France, and it's a little different in England, uh, as we will talk about, but in France, there is much more political and cultural centralization in Paris and the areas around Paris. Um, however, in terms of the broader political rule, France itself is very decentralized. Um, it's it's like a, a hodgepodge of villages, parishes, and guilds. So if you're in, if you're a laborer, you're in a guild, and that has kind of a different political jurisdiction than a village and a parish is is the rule that um, kind of the local religious figure would have, priest or cardinal. So. It, it it isn't exactly a nation in the way we think of a nation the way we think of a nation really is an invention of the 19th century um however it's important to kind of look at the binary look at the the um the the extreme differences here between the country of france so this is kind of a collection of overlapping um political units but also the culture of france which is beginning to collect in a single area in, in the area around paris and especially around the court artisans grow a number they start touring around different cities in france um they call this the tour which is different from the british tour in in britain um in the late 18th early 19th century they take a tour around europe here the tour is if you're a um a craftsperson you would go to different cities in order to learn the, the different techniques. Um, serfdom becomes rarer and rarer. We start to see peasants increasing their standard of living, really by being able to move from village to village and seek uh, a better income from different places. You're, you're much less married to the land. And this is all part of a, a kind of coming out of the Middle Ages, which we'll talk about in a second. So the crown controlled church politics. It acted as a check on papal authority. That's right there. Um, the monarchy moves to the Palace of Versailles. Louis XIV moves it there in 1682, and from there we begin to see modern finance, finance and industry in France. Now Louis is what's known as a mercantilist, and his main minister of finance and his first minister of state, uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, is also uh, a mercantilist. And what this means is they think economic prosperity comes from just having a lot of gold. If you just put a, a shit ton of gold in France itself, you'll be richer. Um, Adam Smith, who comes along in, in the 1770s, he corrects this. However, that that political philosophy and that financial economic philosophy is beginning to take purchase in the late 17th century, which is important for its own right, but it's also important to to remember that Um, kind of an economic philosophy to govern a state or a financial philosophy to govern a state is uh, becoming is becoming right it's new Um, not every ruler was um, was thinking you know what is my economic philosophy right the idea of even having one is kind of new and this follows a, a number of things a number of successes we start to see in France so For about 200 years, the population held. It was constant. Um, So imagine if the population between the year 2000 and the year 1800 in America was exactly the same. That would be, you know, that that would be remarkably different from the world in which we're living in. However, that's what happened in France. But then... 1700 to 1800, it increases by about 50%, and part of this is suddenly farming techniques improve dramatically, and you get a huge um, uh, uh, improvement in grain yields. Now, this mostly happens in England, um, and is important because, you know, you you could ship and you could trade and whatnot, but it's happening all over Europe. Um, Another improvement here is that famines stop happening. Right. Food isn't incredibly plentiful until really the 20th century, but the idea of l- large groups of people starving to death, we really stopped seeing that in the 18th century. Uh, and so, um, you know, about 25% fewer people are dying every year. So part of population growth is people are living longer, right? And they're living long enough to have children, that type of thing. Um, here is a major industrialist. I forgot his name. I should have put it down there. So it's just kind of a random picture of a dude. But, you know, (laughs) anyway, um, so the the France didn't grow at the same rate as England or the Netherlands, um, but they still grew. Uh, Coal mining was one of their most successful sectors, as well as textiles. Textiles is is very important because... um, you know we kind of know france for its fashion its clothing um that type of thing and that was their major industry however um old paper rags i mean excuse me old clothing rags can be made into cheap paper and so what you start to see is not only the textile industry is um is improving clothing and the cost of clothing and, and people can afford uh, nicer clothes people of lower income can afford nicer clothes it makes paper cheaper and so publishing begins to take off uh not just in france but also in england england starts buying french rags you know to to make paper to publish things um and here's an example of a jacket that you know 18th century jacket that you start to see middle class people being able to afford furthermore we get um colonies france france starts colonizing places um um, Haiti, what is now modern-day Haiti, was colonized, and they eventually uh, rebel and declare their freedom, I think 1809. Um, Guadalupe as another place. Um, they begin to, from the new world, bring in a tremendous amount of gold. So the amount of gold circulating triples, and um, yeah, you start to see more, more modest people purchasing luxuries like this jacket. Uh now this feeds into this extra wealth feeds philosophy and learning, right? You, you have the money in which more people can uh when you have more money, more people can be learned, can can you can invest more in in education. And three major kind of ways of looking at the world kind of appear, as you can see here, rationalism, empiricism, naturalism. Um, rationalism really comes from Descartes, who's early in the 17th century, and he sees all knowledge as deriving from deduction, uh, you know, his famous thing. I I think therefore I am. Um, and the idea is to have a radical notion of skepticism to not to pretend you don't know anything and then deduce knowledge from what you definitely know, which is that you are thinking, Right. Um, That you have thoughts, you at least know that even if the rest of the world is the matrix, then the matrix is basically uh, Descartes um, Descartes suspicions realized right that's the that's the plot of the Wachowskis the matrix Um, But then you, you know, you kind of use that to derive what you do know Empiricism is in some ways the opposite in some ways overlaps with rationalism empiricism is What you know, you gather from your senses. So you look at the world, you see how the world is, this is how you have knowledge. Um, uh, Most famous philosopher there is probably John Locke, who saw the the human animal as being a, a tabula rasa, an empty slate, and then impressions are placed upon the human animal. And then you know things because of those impression, those sense impressions. There's also, and this is, you know, a big deal in France, uh, something called naturalism. This isn't a philosophy proper in the way we, we might think of rationalism or empiricism as, but it's. I, I would maybe think of it more of a, as a movement that intersects with political philosophy, and in national nat, naturalism. <laughs> naturalism has this sort of adoration of nature and a return to nature, and it. It sort of imagines that the natural world into which we were born was the place where we were free and equal. And once you started forming associations with other people, once you started, you know, hanging out with other people for good reason to get things to trade, to barter, all of that. However, that that's also imprisoning. You know, you are, um, if you're part of the natural world... You're then uh, you're then free, and it's once you go into society that you're you're in chains. Okay. Also, economy begins to to evolve. This kind of notion of economy. The the word economy comes from the Greek word for household. And so, when we start to hear the term political economy, which we do at this time, it's somewhat oxymoronic in the sense of um, we're now talking about the entire country in terms of resource management, as opposed to before, you only spoke about the house, right? So political economy is actually somewhat of a loaded term, even though it's, it's very casual in the 21st century. Um, the first group, the first school of political economists was the, um, the physiocrats, um, uh, major ones you could see there, Francois Couset, um, Anne Turgot. Uh, he actually came up with the term laissez-faire, um, allowed to do is, is what that translates to. And it's kind of like, it's what we know laissez-faire to be today. You're, you're free to kind of do what you want to do in terms of trade, free to make associations. Um, they also, the, the physiocrats published the Tableau Économique, um, in which it looks at these different spheres in terms of their their what they're doing economically, in terms of what they're doing in trade. So landowners, laborers, and merchants, and, and guildsmen, and how they're interacting with each, with each other. Um, Turgot, long before, maybe 50 years before Adam Smith, saw self-interest as the main motivating factor. Um, that it's people looking out for what they want, what makes them happy, that motivates economic action. Uh, he also says trade restrictions hurt everyone. So these people are not mercantilists um they want people to trade externally again this is like 50 years before adam smith who's famous for saying these things so these things these ideas are in circulation before before smith writes them in the 1770s um he believes to believes in the importance of property property and in investment capital um and now for our purposes uh what this kind of leads into is the French Academy of Science, which was established by Louis XIV, I believe, in 1662. And we see this also in England. They have an a, an academy in England as well devoted to the sciences, really devoted to invention. And um, working with his first secretary of state, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, um, they wanted to establish something that would improve inventions and improve trade and so when we think of the sciences in the 1660s and, and later than that it's not the way you know i'm sure people in this class may be science majors that you're thinking of science in those terms it's really more like invention or projects to improve let's say agriculture or projects to improve the roads or projects to improve waterways um and this is what the French Academy of Science was doing, as well as the, the the its equivalents in its equivalent in England. They were interested in kind of improvements of society, um, not necessarily just knowledge for its own sake. And eventually, it becomes knowledge for its own sake, um, but that that's kind of where it starts. Uh, and this builds over time. Sixteen ninety nine. It's given official rules, which means it's you now it's super fancy. And Louis XIV moves it to the Louvre. The Louvre is a 12th century palace, which by the middle of the 18th century became a museum. And it's still a museum today. Um, And an example of the type of thing we're doing here, um, Merpetue led an expedition to measure the length of a degree along the meridian. So a degree of longitude, Uh, excuse me, a a degree of, I believe it's a degree of longitude along the meridian um which would allow ships to to navigate more specifically, you know, more uh more delicately. Uh, and so that's the type of thing they're doing, right? Because if ships can move better, can can navigate more cleanly, then you can have better trade. Okay. And that brings so that's the the kind of background to to this play. A lot of background. Now, here's Marivaux. Um Marivaux's kind of more in, in his day, he was more known for his novels in the 20th and 21st century. He's more known for his plays. Um, he used stock characters, simple plots. He really was focusing on dialogue and wit, and he became one of those people who, who guarded the, uh, the, the standards of French literature when he was elected in 1747 to the Academy. Um, here is this isn't a this is a 19th century picture of the Italian the, the Italian theater um, in it's not the Italian theater but it's the, the Theater Italien in in Paris um, in which the Triumph of Love was initially performed. I couldn't get an 18th century picture. Sorry about that, but uh, it cl- it was not popular in its day. Closed after six performances, but. The Triumph of Love is probably Marivaux's most famous play today. Uh, it was even turned into a musical. Um, mildly successful musical. And so... One of the reasons why... I should be back. Yep, here I am. Um, one of the reasons why we're doing it, in part, is because... Um, uh, you know, I think it's a good example of French theatre. And I just think this this film is particularly enjoyable i think it's also maybe more fun to watch a light-hearted movie than like read another play we, we've done a lot of reading so um but also um Marivaux was was kind of standard back then and Marivaux has been been growing in fame throughout the 20th century so let's talk about the play we have 15 minutes to do that uh and then we'll obviously that'll that'll bleed into friday so what were some first impressions of the movie
1: It. Um, I was, I guess I was a little confused because, like, you know, the main character, how, like, and obviously she's going around and she's deceiving everyone. But mm-hmm. I, to me, I felt like they kept portraying the like, guilt she was feeling for it. Like, I just, I didn't understand why she was crying so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Um, yeah, I, I, she, she, I think she does genuinely feel feel bad for these people because um so the, the so going through that the plot, right, who are the who are the three people she is sort of positioning herself romantically to?
1: Well so she's the daughter of a king that usurped a drug. And then so she's and so there's then there's the prince the rightful prince to that, like the rightful heir to that throne Mm -hmm. that she falls in love with, so she's trying to get him to fall back in love with her. Mm -hmm. But then there's the philosopher Mm -hmm. that has raised him who has like vowed against love, thinks it's Mm -hmm. a silly waste of time Mm -hmm. and he has raised this man to be the same way. So she's trying to convince that philosopher that love is okay by making him fall in love with her. Mm -hmm. And then also his the philosopher's sister his spinster sister who's been Mm -hmm. alone her whole life had just the comfort of her brother Mm -hmm. that as a man she also tries to get to fall in love with her and i think it's all just so she can get them to allow her to get the ages i think Mm -hmm. or whatever um, yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i guess for them to get married and it to be okay because Mm -hmm. the other two would be against it otherwise Mm
0: -hmm. yeah exactly Great. that that's a great summary Kimberly yeah so there's the three relationships are um, the princess uh, who seduces who wants she wants to marry Aegis right uh, Aegis excuse me <laughs> Aegis uh, who is the rightful king of this this kingdom he, he isn't currently he's off the throne um, in order to do that, she can't present herself as the princess because the princess is his sworn enemy. So she has to take on the role of Fission or Aspicy. She takes on both roles. That's um, Fission is her male role, her her male false face and Aspicy is her female false face. Um, You know, neither of them are her name, but so she has to first of all, convince Hermocritus, to let her stay there and since Hermocritus uh, her initial plan is she's going to be a philosopher studying with Hermocritus but Hermocritus realizes immediately she's a woman and so she goes to the I just want to seduce you I'm so in love with you um her other means is seducing um Hermocrates's sister Leontine and she seduces Leontine as as a man as he Fission. Fission. Um, Yeah. And so those are the three kind of relationships that she's balancing. And so I'll ask, you know, repeat Kimberly's question and extend it to to everyone here, um, because I do think it's actually central to the, the one of the themes of the play is why is she so upset all the time? Right. Whenever she kind of steps, when, whenever she's not being watched by one of those three, she she seems both exasperated and upset. We can assume she's exasperated because this seems somewhat exhausting to have to change genders and identities three times over and over again um, or chain, go through these three different identities, uh, none of which are yours in order to seduce three different people playing three different games within the same house. So, exasperation makes sense, but why do you guys think she is upset? Another way to phrase it might be, why is she crying all the time? why is she in need
1: is it because she's like ultimately kind of betraying love because she goes around and falsely giving it people and getting them to fall in love with someone she's not even actually and when in a reality her ultimate goal is to achieve this real love with ajish
0: okay so you, you see this as potentially she's betraying love okay i, I don't know it's a, mm-hmm. theory. It's a theory okay <laughs> yeah that's fine you could you could suggest something without being sure of it absolutely does anybody else think she's betraying love Does anybody want to um, disagree with Kimberly? And and of course you're going to be very polite when, you, when we disagree with each other. Um, I'm sure you will. But does anybody want to um, maybe push back against Kimberly's uh, thesis or theory? I mean, the play is called The Triumph of Love, right? So... I think we can go with the idea that eventually um, love is triumphant. Uh, However, however, there seems to be a concern about, I think Kimberly, you're absolutely right. There's a concern about betrayal. Um, Now, is it a betrayal of love? Um, Well, I, I, yes and no. I think the way the movie portrays it is that, um, I don't know how you guys felt about how how Hermocrates and Lyontine were treated. Um, but they're, they're treated by the, the filmmaker anyway with a lot of respect. Um, and, well, I'll ask you guys. How did you think, how did you feel about um, how those two characters, uh, uh, played by Fiona Shaw and Ben Kingsley, how do you think they, how did you feel about how they ended up at the end of the, the play movie sorry
1: well I guess I'll say I thought at least especially right at the end when they realized that she was actually the princess and there was no and there was no I can't remember her other name name. (laughs) Uh, thank Mm. you Mm -hmm. and um and and, and even right before that as they're both like running away to leave town to go be with her mm-hmm. that they, they both like at first they're like denying it and then she's like you know what I'm just gonna tell you I'm going to go get married and she's mm-hmm. like me too <laughs> and I, they were just hysterical mm-hmm. like they were so cute their bond like it just showed so much there that mm-hmm. like how happy they both just were for each other that and like relieved that neither was gonna be upset with the other for choosing love um but
0: mm-hmm.
1: i don't know they were i don't know they were funny to me
0: <laughs> yeah there there is the, the you know this kind of setup of love versus science sort of or love versus philosophy which is somewhat equivalent uh, with science at this time um and it it's it, it's interesting it's it doesn't take a lot for science to fall away <laughs> um and yeah i i felt the same way i i thought they were they were um they were both very sweet uh you know they 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 both play kind of clowning roles really well but i don't think the filmmakers were ever mocking them um the closest i think is when you see um uh, ben kingsley's Hermocritus when he comes out with the wig and with the blush on his cheeks uh you know i think that's that's the point where he's maybe a little ridiculous um but ultimately the the triumph of love is one yes a, a triumph of love over sort of science and hyper rationality possibly um but well, the go ahead
1: oh sorry i feel like once you said science it made me remember the very end how like so she's been this, um has been working on something this whole time and I, you don't really know what until the end and it seems she's trying to invent electricity Mm-hmm. and, um, and it's it was them falling in love and then back out of love so quickly and his one comment about it's both positive and negative at mm-hmm. the same time that she it was like it was almost like that love gave the answer to what she had been trying to solve all along. Hmm. she was like, Oh my gosh, positive and negative. That's what I need to do to get this electricity to work and, mm-hmm. then, and that is how it ends is there in her study watching her create the power and she's all excited and then it like goes back to the princess and prince and they're Mm -hmm. they make up and are okay
0: yeah and and what's interesting is they make up in the carriage right because um uh aegis goes out to to meet her and as they're making up in the carriage you can see the electricity from the house flashing so the electricity is kind of flashing on them as they're making up and it's yeah, it's a really interesting moment. Obviously, this is not in the original play because, you know, um, conducting electricity was not something people did in the 1730s. Uh, so this is this is a, an innovation of uh, Claire Peoples, I think her name is, um, and then uh, Bertolucci also produced this. Um, but what do you what do you guys make of? This movie ending on this kind of discovery of of modernity, this kind of modern discovery of electricity. Why is that important? That might be another way to say that.
1: Um, I guess, like, for me, I could take it kind of as, like, so Hermocrates the whole time is kind of, like, saying that love is this primitive feeling. Like, it's not it's not modern and then but in the end like i said it helps them achieve that modernity mm-hmm. in a sec.
0: okay yeah um maybe sure that that that's that it, it's uh that love is not you know that love is not an um whatever an anti-modern thing or a pre, you know a primitive thing um yeah, that could be a, a you know a possible, a possible reading. Uh, it seems like it's it's joining the play into the modern, right? Because she makes this discovery of electricity, and then what happens after that is we get the uh, curtain call in modern clothing, right? the 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 actors all come out; they're dressed in modern garb, singing singing the song in French, and then bowing before the audience. So there is this kind of, um, kind of pulling Marivaux into the twentieth, twenty-first century. Um.
1: Speaking of the audience, why mm. is it that Leontine can see them a few different times?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good. You know, this is she sees them twice, and then we, then everyone sees them at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So why do you guys think that is? Why can she see modern people?
1: Oh, that's an interesting. Okay, when you put it like that, because she's the one who is like trying to be modern and make this new discovery. Maybe mm-hmm. that's why she has, like, she is the one who has that connection
0: mm-hmm.
1: to the modern times mm-hmm. in the play. Yeah.
0: Okay. That that could be it. Sure. I don't. I don't have a reason for. You know. I'm. I'm not gonna. I. I I'm not the dispenser of of all that is true about this play. But I think that's a perfectly good reason that she is, she is kind of the most modern person here. um, You know, and so she, she's maybe a portal into the, you know, the modern people who are watching it. Um, But that, that is a really interesting connection. When I first saw this, I never really knew what to make of that ending other than it's fun. I think a lot of the decisions, uh, a lot of the decisions that, that the director made, was for the kind of the pleasure of it um you know that it's fun to watch these characters come out and sing a song to an audience um but there is this difficulty with modernity that is definitely just being put into this that wasn't in the original script um and i think that you're reading kimberly of why um why leontine can see the the audience i think is is a perfectly good one makes a lot of sense to me Um, which is you know she can she can kind of see she can see um, she can see modernity and also this play has a place in modernity right that Marivaux is somebody who is deserving of attention in the next century right this this movie being made in 2001 Um, and so I think all of that that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's, that's, I think a perfectly good reading. All right. I think we are over time by a minute. Um, any other comments before we go? And we're going to return to this, this play on Friday or this movie anyway. Oh that's all right. Uh, but any other questions, uh, just let me know. If not, you're free to go. If anybody needs to meet, just, uh, just stay on. I'll stay on for a few minutes. All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you. See you Friday. See you Friday. Thank you. Thank you. you.